Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. We're delighted to have with us today the multi-Oscar-nominated James Newton Howard. You know his music from so many great movies, from Pretty Woman and The Fugitive to The Sixth Sense and The Hunger Games, live-action Disney films like Maleficent, and the iconic theme for TV's ER. Welcome, James. Thank you. I was just taking a drink of water. <laughs> when I finished. Thanks, John. <laughs> it's good to be here. We're here today to talk about Raya and the Last Dragon, Disney's latest animated adventure, about one warrior's journey to find the last remaining dragon. Could I take you back a few years and ask, what's your earliest memory of a Disney animated movie? Were they important to you growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was growing up in the 50s, you know, Snow White, Pinocchio, pick any of them. I was a big fan. I was a big uh, Mouseketeers fan, too. I was in love with Annette Funicello. I used to kiss the TV screen when she came on. <laughs> and so you scored other Disney animated projects. I seem to remember Dinosaur, Atlantis, Treasure Planet. Why did this one appeal to you? Well, I love doing animation, and I hadn't done one in a long time. And um, <clears throat> Don Hall is a great director. It seemed like a really interesting musical opportunity, which is something I'm always looking for. And uh, I think I got a script at first, or they sent over some animation. It looked fantastic. It was irresistible, so I dove in. Raya is, I think, the first Disney animated film to have a Southeast Asia-inspired setting. Right. So even though this is a fantasy, did the settings in, in any way serve to inspire you or maybe move you to do some research into music from that part of the world? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the sound of the score is extremely important in the movie because we're in a fantasy land called Kumandra, which is a non-specific Southeast Asian world. And the music from those areas is extremely distinctive and considered to be almost sacred by the people who live in those places. I thought it was of paramount importance that I use those sounds if not primarily, certainly in the forefront of the score. I knew it couldn't be just a traditional orchestral score, that there had to be flutes and gongs and, and plucked instruments, which we found, and in most cases, resampled them and processed them. But yeah, very, very important, the sound of the, the instruments we used. So how do you start? Did you start by sort of beginning uh, to line up the soundscape or do you sort of stand back and write themes that you think might be appropriate for the drama and the emotion? I certainly do assemble a palette in the very beginning and, and never more important than in Raya, uh, a, a palette that would distinguish it from anything else that you're going to hear and certainly anything else that I'd ever done. I mean, I'd done a little bit of Gamelon work in a couple of other movies early on. But, you know, I'm a melody guy, and themes are extremely important to me. So one of the first things I did was a scene called Running on Raindrops, which is a moment where the last dragon, Sisu, just goes into this incredible flying sequence where the dragon's literally kind of trotting along and bouncing around on raindrops. It's extremely beautiful. And that was an opportunity I felt to write 
one of the main themes from the movie. So I dove in, did that first, I think, very early on. And then I did the opening, which is about a five-minute montage, which was very challenging and really exciting because it really had to, as is the case with main titles, offer up a promise of what was to come. And part of that promise is the sound of the instruments you're going to use and some of the themes. And so that was a big one. One of the, the instruments I used right at the top was a sort of a... Balinese jaw harp. It's, it's called a gingong, I think. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful sound. And, you know, once I get a great sound and it's working in about 10 seconds of the movie, uh, I start to gain my confidence. And I think, oh, that's good. Then I just start fishing around and just make my way through it like an inchworm. But, you know, those first two... I worked very closely with the directors and those first couple of sequences were very successful and I think everybody was real excited about what it could be. What was the state of the movie when you started? Were you working from scripts and early storyboards? Had the voices been recorded yet? Or? You know, um, when you're working with animation, early on you get a whole mix of things. You get some storyboards, you get some rough animation. I found that the story development was so effective and the way that the animators and directors all work together is just always so impressive. It's really a, a collective. Everybody's working together, including me, the composer. I don't feel like I'm off in an ivory tower somewhere by myself. I feel like I'm seated at the round table with everybody else. So I'm quite comfortable writing to an absolute static drawing. It could have a picture of Raya just kind of smiling for 12 seconds, and then it goes into finished animation, and then it goes into storyboard. And somehow or another, it, you get used to it, and you just find yourself actually becoming moved by a couple of static drawings of one of the characters if the music's working. Yeah, that's amazing to me because I, it seems to me that you generally are inspired by finished images in live action films, aren't you? Yeah, well, you know, sources of inspiration are varied and many. Certainly performances, uh, the colors of the movie, the settings, the story, everything. But yes, absolutely, performances are key. What is the difference between scoring for animation and scoring a live action movie? Is it different? I think it's essentially, it's the same in as much as it's about storytelling. Somebody said, and I don't know who it was, but I completely agree that one of the great things about composing for animation is that you can do anything. And you really can, because I'm really good at writing uh, goofy music. I'm good at writing uh, mock serious stuff. I, you know, I mean, I like doing all kinds of uh, fun things with music, and there's always a place to do that in animation. The movie is quite substantial, I would say. There, there are moments of intense emotion, lots of humor. I think it's got such a great range of emotion, and there's also places for me to, you know, kind of act goofy and silly. Since I'm essentially a goofy, silly person at heart, uh, it's a natural fit. <laughs> The characters are so unusual, I think. You know, Raya's the young, determined warrior, and Sisu is the funny dragon, and Damari is the enemy. Did they need to be represented differently in terms of music? 
Oh, I think so. The whole friendship between, or the what you think is going to be a friendship between Raya and Namari, um, it, it, it turns, and, and Namari becomes an adversary. And certainly her character has her own sound. Raya is more associated with a more heroic sound. Her relationship with her father is another kind of sound because he's a very wise, loving father. And then the dragon, I found Sisu just to be so funny and so great, but can also turn on a dime and be very heroic. And, and so I tended to write celebratory music for Sisu because she is at her core so joyful. It's all about loving life for her. So yeah, they all have their sounds for sure. if you can think of some of the unusual instruments from the region that you might have employed, because I think the sound of this score is so special. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, we used a lot of plucked sort of bowed things. Um, we took air hoos and a thing called a zong nyu. Some of these things came from China, but then they were, you know, hundreds of years ago, they migrated to other parts of Asia and turned into things called a rebab and a, a teyan, and then the lots of gamelan instruments. The gamelan orchestra is a very interesting orchestra. It's made up of a lot of tuned gongs and certain wooden flutes. And I was writing parts for some of these plucked and bowed instruments that would not have been possible because I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to what you had to do to make it playable for a player. So I didn't want to subject a player to that. So we had to tune them and stretch them and tweak them to a place where I could play them on a keyboard and they still sounded like something that you could imagine from that part of the world. But its DNA was shared by lots of different places. That sounds like fun, actually. It was fun. I think, I think if you're not having fun on an animated movie, then something's wrong. <laughs> I'm also interested in the voices that we heard. Some of them sounded like traditional choir, but a lot of others were sort of wild and maybe a little exotic. Can you tell us about the vocal sounds? I'm glad you noticed that because we used a couple of very talented soloists. There's an amazing singer in, she's out of New York, named Loire, L-O-I-R-E. And she did a lot of the chanting, a lot of the war chants. She would take my melodies. There was actually a language that had been developed, but she took a lot of vowel content and turned those into the war chants that you hear. There was also a lovely girl in London named Sumadu. She was amazing. So we had those two soloists singing along with a traditional group of, I don't know, 20 or 40 men and women. I wanted the choir to have a, I wanted you to hear the personalities. I wanted you to hear the individual vibratos in certain places. There's a sequence where Sisu swims. And I had in my mind uh, four Polynesian women uh, singing and swaying in the breeze. And you could just hear their beautiful sopranos, kind of like a, you know, a heavenly choir, but from somewhere that you can't identify and we we achieve that I think in a number of places but I think the Loire contribution really 
was Raya's warrior spirit. And that comes out early on in the, in the main titles. And we use that in certain places throughout. And she just did a brilliant job. I'm sort of curious, uh, did this require some experimentation or was everything pretty much written out and finalized when she got her shot at it? Well, everything was certainly written out. Now, there's a time and place for improvisation, of course, but every note in this score was very carefully produced and responded to, I might add, by the filmmakers and some very good listeners on the other side of the glass, meaning the producers and directors. The first session I did with Loire, she was in New York, I was here, and I was kind of guiding her through a couple of parts. And then I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just send her all the stems, all the bits and pieces of my score, and let her in her own sweet time, because we had time. I'll give her some direction, and she can just start working and send me some examples. And she just killed it. There were times I would ask her perhaps to use a softer sound, and in one part, I wanted her to be more harsh. And there's a scream that occurs, which is kind of like a, a warrior scream uh, during the rebirth cue at the, near the end of the movie. And I really wanted to hear the rawness in her voice. So there was certainly some direction for me, but once she got the scent of what we were trying to do, she just, she was all over it. It makes the score so interesting, I think. And another thing that I really loved were the percussion sounds. And I wonder if those two maybe were somewhat unusual and perhaps a little bit exotic sounding. Well, they certainly are exotic sounding. I mean, they're unusual in Western music, but you know, in terms of Indonesian and Southeast Asian, there were a lot of skin drums and hand drums and rattles. And again, most of those were samples that we had made. And we found that when we used the samples, uh, there was a crisp, a real crisp quality to them. And they had a lot of impact. And we certainly doubled a lot of the percussion in when we did the orchestral sessions with live percussion. but. In some of these places, uh, the heart and soul of the percussion tracks are these samples that my talented crew and uh, talented engineers had just turned into just really powerful with a lot of snap to them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, I was really happy with it. Because you know, you're stuck in the same place every movie, you know? Okay, now I have to do a big percussion section for this. And the next movie, you have to do a big percussion. And so they're not always new, you know? You try and do your best, but it, oftentimes I don't think like I've broken new ground. And it's nice to feel as a composer that occasionally you do break some new ground. So um, did you have to do this during the pandemic? And if so, you know, what impact did that have on how you recorded and where? Um, yes, is the answer. We, we were working during the pandemic. I've already been working on Raya since, I think, November of 19. And then they took some time out to do some additional animation. But I, I came back on it in March and then everything shut down for two months. We didn't record until October, and luckily, within a month of the recording time, uh, Sony opened back up, and we were able to record at Sony with, with very limited numbers of people in the control room. And of course, we're used to these very big sections of musicians, and we could only have 40 people in the room at a time. 
And it sounds like a lot of people, but in a big movie action sequence, you need more people than that. At least I do. Um, so we would double, we would perform those parts twice. So it sounded like not 40 people, but 80 people. So it's really an engineering feat. You know, I credit Sean Murphy with recording it in a very ingenious way because of the social distancing. Everybody's spread out in a different way. So the engineering has to be dramatically different to, to make it sound good. And then the great Alan Meyerson mixed it and he um, just gave it all that punch and detail and all the stuff that I think is important in the score. Did you have to record the strings separately from the horns and the woodwinds? We did. We, um, we did strings first, I think maybe strings and harp, if I can recall correctly. And then we did woodwinds. And then the brass had to be separate because obviously nobody wanted to be near a brass player because they're just spewing out, you know, torrents of saliva when they're playing their instruments. So everybody wanted to stay well away from them. And the musicians were incredible. I mean, the musicians here are just, they're just wonderful. And it sounded as good as it ever did, even with all the distancing. And so everybody really rallied. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including James Newton Howard's score for Raya and the Last Dragon. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. I'm curious to know if you have daughters and and what the impact of a film like this can have on young girls seeing these empowered young female warriors. Uh, yes, I have a daughter. She's uh, second year medical school now. So listen, the, the time for uh, suppression of young girls and women is long since over. And this is certainly a a celebration of of a warrior who happens to be female. There are real issues about uh, healing, about a fractious world coming together. And that is purely a result of the actions taken by this girl, Raya. So the message couldn't be clearer. Yeah, I, I would hope that every young girl and old girl would find this inspiring. Yeah, and there's such a great message about trust in this, mm. and and that again seems like something that we've lost somehow, and in, in all of the uh, struggles of the past couple of years, I, I thought it had a, just a lot of great messages. Yeah, it does. I, early on, the Don Hall said to me, "Well, one of the core issues is that the world is broken, and as a result, we don't trust anybody. Or is it because we weren't trusting each other, the world became broken?" So you can choose to think of it either way, but in the end, it's about faith in the goodness of humanity. Um, faith that given the opportunity, people will more often do the right thing. Sometimes that's hard to believe in, in this day and age, but I think ultimately it is true. Certainly the timeliness of this movie is very fortuitous. I think it's extremely relevant. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be a, kind of a soothing and exciting and 
inspiring movie for everybody to see, actually. How has the coronavirus pandemic affected you and the way you've done business over the last year? Well, you know, I w- I've been pretty lucky. I was in the middle of another movie um, called News of the World. We couldn't record in Los Angeles at that period in time, so we recorded that in London. Um, I was remote, of course. In the beginning, it just shut us down. It meant that I was falling behind in some regards, but somehow you weren't worried about that. We all kind of reconnected after about eight weeks, I think, later. Um, I had a wonderful guy who's been cleaning my studio for 23 years, coming here by himself every couple of days and just sanitize the whole place. So this place was like a surgical suite. My relationships with filmmakers has been entirely based on me creating demos of the music, emailing it to the group, and then getting on Zoom and, and talking about it. Of course, I love to show off my studio and wish everybody was here and we could all, you know, pop a cork once in a while, which they did actually when, when we did the last playback. But I felt so close to them and such a part of the team. And, you know, that was possible. I think, I think we all adjust to whatever we need to adjust to. Do you think this will change the business? I think it'll change everything. I really do. Uh, I have no idea how or, or to what extent. Hollywood is incredibly inventive and a lot of brilliant people have figured out how to make movies and how to record music and how to exchange ideas without being in the room together. It's less than ideal, but maybe it makes you try harder. Maybe it makes composing a score for somebody. That is nothing but a gift, as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps it makes me value it even more. I think a lot of people would agree that things just mean more now. You know, it's just things have reached a place where perhaps we're just more appreciative of every good thing in our life, in spite of this nasty thing we, we, we all wish would go away soon. What about the theatrical experience? I wish that I had seen Raya on the big screen, and I know when we do, it'll play and sound terrific. I'm hoping that the theatrical experience comes back as strong as it ever was. What's your take on it? Well, obviously, I agree with you. I I think people generally are social animals. They like to go out to the movies. I think it will come back. I think it's going to take confidence. It's going to take, it might take more than a year, but eventually, I think people will want to be, have the theatrical experience again. I, I don't think there's any question of it. Some of your formative years working with and for Elton John, I'm wondering, what did you learn from Elton or from those albums and tours that you still use today? I learned so much from working with Elton. I was just a baby and maybe 23 or 24, I don't don't know, somewhere around there. And one of the things about Elton's music I loved the most were his orchestral arrangements. And in those, those early records, Leave On and Tiny Dancer and 60 Years On and Your Song, and they all had these wonderful orchestral arrangements. And for some reason, when I first joined the band, there were some tracks on this, the album that I was working on that needed orchestra. And I asked Elton if I could do the orchestra arranging. And he asked me if I'd ever done it before. And I said, no. And he said, okay, you can do it. <laughs> And 
which was the way he was. His generosity was limitless. And so six weeks later, I was in Abbey Road conducting the London Symphony on a song called Tonight. And I think that kind of generosity I learned from him, that kind of faith and collaboration, I learned a lot about mixing rhythm tracks, contemporary pop tracks, mixing that with an orchestra, how to balance those things. And I think to this day, I still, and, and Raya is a perfect example. I really approach every score in a way as if it's a record. I think about the drum parts, how they're relating to the bass part. The basis of any good record, at least it was when I was coming up through the record business, was bass and drums. That's your basic track. And if that's good, everything else tends to feel good. And I still think about a big orchestral cue that way. I remember Michael Kamen and I used to talk about this, and he called creating that internal rhythm in an orchestra, he called it orchestral violence. And I've always loved that term because it looks violent when you see orchestras just really bashing away and all this internal rhythm is occurring and you're not having to depend on a drum machine or somebody playing a drum. It's all coming from within the band. And those kinds of sensibilities I attribute to my time with Elton. Are there other artists or composers whose way of working found its way into your own philosophy or routine? Oh, without question. I mean, <clears throat> clearly the classical composers, you know, I and everybody else owes everything to. Um, but in terms of process, I did a couple of movies with Hans Zimmer and we did a couple of Batman movies together and he's a conceptual guy. He'll state a concept for what he's doing. And you might hear the concept and go, wow, that's, that's really out there. But he, pers he pursues it. And I remember when he was talking about the Joker, he had written the two-note theme, the very famous, duh, duh, during the first Batman Begins. <clears throat> we had both been competing for the theme, and I lost. He won. <laughs> but it was very friendly. But anyway, he said, Okay, we wrote a two-note theme for Batman Begins. I want to write a one-note theme for the Joker. And I just thought that was funny. But in fact, that's what he did. He wrote this creepy one-note thing that slides up and goes down. And <clears throat> what can I say? So I, I've been trying to think more conceptually because it, it, it's reassuring to a director, for one thing. If you're able to say, well, I think... I see it like this, and you describe it not necessarily in musical terms. For instance, in, in News of the World, Paul Greengrass and I decided on the concept of a broken consort, which is a, a group of musicians whose instruments were half broken because the whole world was broken at that point. And I think in the case of Raya, it was very easy to grasp that these were going to be instruments specific to this world. They were have, going to have influences from all parts of Southeast Asia. And that was what we wanted to stick to whenever possible. Now that did not exclude traditional orchestra by any means, because what the orchestra was able to do was give weight to some of these big action sequences. Also, perhaps a more intense emotional experience. But clearly, if I was writing a cue and there was no no, no member of this other palette that I was using, then I had to go find a place to put it in there because we wanted to stay 
very disciplined about the writing. You've scored more than 100 movies since you started 35 years ago. What keeps Actually, you- I think it's about 146, but <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> what keeps you doing it? People ask me if I want to, and I say, sure. No, I, listen, it's the greatest job in the world. I still love it as much now as I did in the beginning. That doesn't mean I don't go through periods of frustration when I'm rewriting something for the 30th time. But come on, John, to get paid to to and honored by somebody asking you to provide the music to their movie is, is just the greatest thing in the world. I just, I still find it fascinating, challenging, and absolutely fulfilling. I think somebody told me Aaron Copeland retired. He said, I think I've expressed myself enough now. And he stopped. So I'm not there yet. Good. Um, And speaking of not stopping, you have another Disney film coming up, the live-action Jungle Cruise. Can you maybe give us an idea of what it is that score is like? I know we're all excited about it. It's going to be one of the biggest movies of the summer, I think. I think it's a great movie. It's really fun. It was really hard. There's a lot of music in it, and there's a lot of giant music in it. One of the greatest scores ever written by John Williams is Raiders, of course, and I think that I probably used Raiders as as, as a measure of this, the kind of sensibility that I wanted to achieve. Um, but then I think it has plenty of my own take and flavors of it. This takes place in, in South America, and, it, and it's basically a treasure hunt. So there are lots of opportunities for exotic sounds and percussion and everything, you, you know, everything that you can think of is in that movie. But yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of that movie. I, I think I've got good themes in this, that movie. And Raya, by the way. I'm my own biggest fan, you can tell. <laughs> well, you know, we're all excited for Jungle Cruise, as we are for everyone to see Raya and the Last Dragon. So mm. thank you, James, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you could rate it because that really helps others find the series. Check out Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney Plus and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed.